1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading dying. Scripture reading this morning, as printed in your bulletin, is out of the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Actually, we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 27, through verse 8 in chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, this is found on page 940, page 940 of the Blue Pew Bible. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is it God, the God of Jews only? Is he the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word of the Lord.
2: Let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we come to your word, help us in the proclamation of it, help us in the hearing of it, help all of us, Lord, to receive it by faith and to live it out in our life. May it, by your grace, transform our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the comic uh, Calvin and Hobbes, uh, which is no longer running, uh, but you, of course, know from the very name Calvin and Hobbes that there's a lot of thinking goes, in, goes on in this uh, strip. Uh, named for the philosopher Hobbes and the theologian Calvin. Uh, The boy is Calvin, and and one of the major times that they uh, expose their philosophy and talk about life is going down the hill on the sled, which always ends in crash, you know, and falling off a cliff, etc. And like cartoons do, they get up and go again. So they're going down the hill, and I think I've referred to this before but never read it to you. I've been good all day so far, Calvin says. So Hobbes, the tiger, riding behind him, ah, Christmas is getting near, huh? You got it. I've been wondering, though, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? Buying down the, the slope. I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. Is that good enough, or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? He says, it's, now... Hobbes is doing like this as they're about to hit the tree. They crash into the tree as they're flying. In other words, do I really have to be good or do I just have to act good? And, of course, as they're picking up the broken sled, Hobbes says wisely, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he can get. (laughs) To which he responds, okay, so do I have to be really good or just pretty good? Well, he goes on from there. Well, an exploration as to what really constitutes righteousness and in this supposed world where it means whether you get gifts or not, uh, how good do you have to be? And uh, if God were to do it this way, you might say in the end that he would have to take what he can get and I think this is out the common idea, nobody out there will say, I've never done anything wrong in my life. I don't think there's any human being that would ever say, I've never done anything wrong in my life. But most human beings think that they're going to heaven. So likely this is the kind of thing we all think all of us have done some bad things in our lives. So if God's looking for perfection, he's looking for us to be good through and through inside and out all the time. Well, nobody's going to make that. So obviously he's got to have a lower standard. He kind of has to take what he can get in terms of righteousness with human beings. Uh, He'll have to accept people, not because they're perfect, but because at least they've done some good, or at least they've done a little more good than bad, and maybe throw in with that, they've done more good than a lot of other people, maybe most people. You think, they're, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good, you know. They've done some good things. They've done more than other people have done. And so the common idea is those who go to heaven are relatively good people. At least, and of course, if there's a little bit of that in our lives, it means we've got a little bit of reason to boast about ourselves, to say, you know, well, and and here's how we say: at least I haven't done so and so, or well, (laughs) I've done so, but at least I'm not. At least I've, you know, at least, at least, we have something that we can hold as a flag, something that we can bring before him, some some little bit of boasting. And we can't stand to have to say, I got nothing. We can't stand it. We hate it to the bottom of our hearts. It's offensive to us to say, I have really nothing to commend myself to. Before God, by nature, that's the way we say. It. Well, this passage, there are a lot of ways to break it up. I'm just going to touch on three things. One is that there's no boasting by works, as Paul lays out here. No boasting by works. Uh, Where Ben began reading in verse 27, uh, is there any boasting? He says, no, it's excluded. The idea is it's absolutely shut out in the cold. There's no admission under any circumstances ever of boasting because what a person has done has nothing to do with being accepted by God. And he even says, it's not even, the whole principle is not works. It's faith. Works are left completely out of the equation. So if you imagine boasting this little rat, you know, little tiny voice, slowly the door is just shut on it and that voice doesn't even sound anymore. The voice, the vain, pathetic voice of boasting is absolutely shut out. There is no boasting. Then Paul with that kind of discussion in verses 27 and following, jumps right into Abraham. If there is anybody in the whole history of the world, from a Jewish perspective... That could bring in some good works. It would have to be Abraham, the father of our faith. Well, Jewish thought, rabbinic thought, the rabbis would even describe this verse that Paul quotes in uh, Genesis, from Genesis 15, 6. They would have turned that into a merit statement. Uh, They would say that his faith was merited as righteousness, that it was counted as, instead of even using the word righteousness, as merit. Uh, They would talk about uh, the faith and connect it with other actions of, of Abraham. And so they would basically say that Abraham believed and obeyed God and merited his favor, even favor in their writings that resulted in the salvation of Israel from Egypt. So they were all about Abraham and merit. But he goes to this person, Abraham, and he says, what about Abraham's uh, boasting. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Then he has that little phrase, but not before God. And basically he means, but God says, no way. God says, not hardly. Does he have any way, uh, any reason for voting, uh, For boasting. Whatever man's view of the matter may be, Paul says God's view is not that Abraham was justified by works. And then he gives the quote in verse 3 to show that it was purely faith, that it had nothing to do with works. The statement that he is declared or counted as righteous has nothing to do with anything that he did. It's purely because he believed God. And this word counted to him as righteous. The word, this this phrase back there in Genesis, with the word counted or considered, uh, even imputed, and the particular preposition that's used is used several times in the Old Testament in a similar way. We're in Leviticus seven, verse eighteen. He says, uh, "The person who offers a, a, an offering improperly, it shall not be credited to him." It will not be counted to his account, Leviticus 7.18. Or Leviticus 17.4, when an offering is made, it says uh, "and and in front of the tabernacle and does not bring it in the right place, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man, counted to that man. Uh, Interestingly, when he's talking about the Levites and he says when they receive all their contributions from the people and then they in turn make a contribution, it will be counted as though they had threshed the floor themselves. It'll be counted as a floor threshing uh, offering just like everybody else's. You see, he uses that phrase, it will be counted, it will be imputed to him in that way. And so the same kind of meaning here. Uh, when Abraham believed, it was imputed to him righteousness. Imputed righteousness was counted to him. Only by his faith there there were no works in view. Chrysostom made this statement about Abraham. For a person who had no works, to be justified by faith was nothing unlikely. But for a person richly adorned with good deeds, like Abraham... In every chapter, practically, you can see more of his faith and obedience. Not to be made just from these works, but from faith. This is the thing to cause wonder and to set the power of faith in a strong light. In other words, all that there was in Abraham's life that could have been commended, but none of that had anything to do with his acceptance before God. Nothing. So, there is no boasting By works. And then there is no earning by works. There is no earning by works. Sam, will you come into my office? His boss says. Sam, you know, man, you and I have gotten to be such good friends. My my wife and I have really enjoyed spending time with you and Mary Ellen, and we've just fallen in love with those three girls of you. Our, Our daughter just loves babysitting those precious girls. Well i we were just wondering what could we do for you special this christmas and of course he's starting his eyes getting big cuz this guy's so wealthy and some something we were thinking of something for the whole family and i think we've got just the thing we are going to give you your paycheck that would be a pretty big disappointment wouldn't it you're going to give me my paycheck. If you don't give me my paycheck, I would sue you. What do you mean? That's no gift. That's nothing kind that you're doing for me. You act like, oh, you're bestowing this great favor upon me, this huge extra thing that out of the blue. No. And imagine him saying, don't thank us. We're glad to do it. It makes us happy to do something special for you. We just want you to kick back and enjoy that paycheck this Christmas. Well, that's Paul's point, isn't it? In verses 4 and 5. Uh, you work, your wage is not a gift. It's a debt now. The literal word debt is the same word we use when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so it's a debt. You come to the end of a work week and they're handing you a paycheck. They owe you that paycheck. He says, but that's not the way it works with God. He's not handing out paychecks. He's not saying, boy, you put your time in, you've earned your righteousness, you've done the good things I've asked you to do, I've I've added it all up. Man, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to give you the standing of being my son. I'm going to give you the standing of of having the kingdom of God and the inheritance of blessings, etc. No, as the NET or the, uh, the New Living Translation puts it, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. And so there is no earning by works, no earning anything. So there's no boasting by works. There's no earning anything by works. And then the real essence of this passage and probably one of the heartbeats of the whole gospel is this statement in verse 5, when he contrasts that and says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So he's showing that our approach to God has nothing to do with what we've done. Just like, the, unlike the wage earner, there's a stark contrast. But what's arresting is this phrase. It's the radical nature of this phrase. It's not just that we don't bring works. It's what we do bring. We bring ungodliness to the table. And we have to acknowledge that we bring ungodliness to the table and then we have to acknowledge the magnificent grace of God who declares ungodly people not guilty. Now I want you to understand that. Paul is saying, this is the way it happens. This is what true faith is. It recognizes something about me and it recognizes something about God. It says, you are the God who justifies the ungodly, who I am, and I'm going to trust you. See, there's some major problems on both sides. Number one, we're not convinced. (laughs) Well, ungodly. Ungodly. And this is a very strong term. In Scripture, for instance, when... Abraham himself is discussing with God the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's trying to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of Lot. Maybe who, some other righteous people are there. And he says, Lord, you won't uh, put the righteous to death with the wicked, this word, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, thinking of the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. You, you, you wouldn't judge them both in the same way. Or you think in First Timothy 1, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, enslavers, liars, perjurers, etc. The ungodly. In Second Peter, he describes the, the, all the people of the earth at the time of Noah. They're the ungodly. And in judgment in Jude 1, when God comes to pour out wrath, it's upon the ungodly. But here it says, he justifies the ungodly. It's really striking because this very word is used in Old Testament texts talking about how earthly judges must judge righteously, not, not take bribes, so that they Justify this very word, the ungodly. Exodus 23, Proverbs 24, etc. But that very word is used. You can't accept a bribe. It's not right to do that and justify and so the, the ungodly. So there is a, 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 a paradox here. As Denny says, there is a miracle here. There is a miracle here. That the ungodly stand before him, not as having been changed, not as meeting him halfway, not as bringing him something that would cause him to say, "Well, okay, I forgive you." The word ungodly means to be destitute of reverential awe to God, like Proverbs three eighteen, the final phrase of his whole description of man's sin: "There is no fear of God before their eyes." This really calls to mind that. In fact, the beginning of that section, Romans 1.18, where he begins the whole section to describe man's sin, he says, God's wrath is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's this word, it's the related word. So in the very context of saying this summarizes our sin, we hold God in contempt. His glory and his majesty, his prerogatives, his authority, ultimately don't mean that much to us human beings. That's our problem. How much fundamentally we despise and ignore and put him at the periphery of our lives. That is ungodliness. It's the first cousin to mocking God and blaspheming God and God... Says, I declare righteous those who up to that point hold me in contempt. He justifies those who up to that point have been actively opposed to him. And that's why so many have said the gospel is summed up in this word. And you and I must see that Every person justified is justified as ungodly. They're not some kind of godlies, you know, semi godlies, partly godly, ungodly. Every everyone. That's who this God is. That is what He does, and what is each of us called to do? Verse five: not to work, not to bring our goodness our accomplishments, but simply, helplessly, humbly to trust in Him who would justify us even though we're ungodly, even though we've done such stuff against Him all of our lives. That's the heart of the gospel. It's so much like, and we're going to deal with this next week, we're going to do four Sundays of talking about justification to kick the year off. And then we're going to hit Ruth, hopefully, in, in in February. And so next week, we're going to talk about the tax gatherer and the Pharisee. But at least we've got to mention this because of the parallel. The Pharisee stood before God and announced all that he had done and had not done. And all the, the tax gatherer said was, Have mercy on me, the sinner. What was he admitting? I'm the ungodly. Have mercy Justify me, forgive me. Interestingly, Jesus uses the very word there as Luke describes it. This man who simply said, have mercy upon me, the sinner, who came as ungodly, described himself as ungodly, trusted in him, it says of him, he was justified. He was justified. And so Luke is presenting through that parable, Jesus saying that people are justified by simply coming and saying, have mercy on me. The sinner. So again, you see, you believe something about yourself that is very serious, but then you believe something about God that is wonderful, that is amazing. And that's the root of that amazement that occurs in our lives over God. That's why Psalm 134 says, "...there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared." Fear meaning awe. This awe, this contempt that we've had for God is transformed into awe and amazement and adoration and love and trust through being forgiven. But if we've got a casual idea about what we've done before God and we just need a few band-aids here and there, you don't run out of the doctor's office and say, I got a band-aid! You may run out months later after multiple surgeries when you were, thought you were going to die and you're alive and you say, I'm alive. See, that, that really is, that really is the heart of the believer. I'm alive. <laughs> Me, dog, I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven of all people. That's the root Jonathan Edwards says, immediately before this act of justification, God beholds him only as an ungodly creature. That's how he beholds you. You're an ungodly creature, and I will justify you as you stand there. <laughs> That's why I say this is offensive. I had a friend who was preaching on this uh, in South Louisiana which is an interesting place, of course. Um, But he was preaching on this in South Louisiana, and right down the highway from them, just a couple of miles, was one of the state prisons. So he was trying to make the point that we're all the same, we're all sinners similar before God. And he said, we're no different than those men down there in that prison. He actually had, and I hope none of the elders will do this this morning, he actually had an elder, so-called stand up in the service, angry, offended, and said, we are not like those men down there. Talk about not getting the point. (laughs) And he would have said, we're not ungodly like they're ungodly. And if he really, really believes that, he's in danger. He's in danger of being lost. He's in danger of being the Pharisee of whom Jesus says he was not justified. He was not justified. Finally, Cranfield points out, the great commentator on this passage, uh, he says, Paul's language here means that Abraham was so much a one that didn't have a claim on God, Abraham's included in this. See, that's his point. Abraham wasn't forgiven or justified because of all the good he did. Abraham was considered by God an ungodly man who had to be declared righteous by the grace of God. That's encouraging. That's encouraging to each one of us. It applies to every one of us. And so as you are thinking about your own life, interestingly he moves to David and he can speak of David, the murderous adulterer who declares, blessed are those to whom God does not count his sin. And, and that's made equivalent to what is declared with Abraham. He's declared righteous. They're both in the same category, even this man or this man. It doesn't matter, you see. No matter what your condition, we're all considered ungodly. We all all bring sins that must be forgiven and not covered and not counted against us. And God does it by his mercy and grace. How do you approach God every day? How do you approach God every day? You come as one with something of that sense, oh Lord, You accept me with no reason at all, except your mercy and love, which cannot change. It doesn't depend on me. I want you to notice those words of the first hymn that we'll sing during communion. Read them, sing them, treasure them in your hearts. It's nothing that I have done. It's nothing that I could bring. It's all what God has done for me. Let us pray. O Lord, we would turn, all of us, any one of us, Lord, who has believed in our own righteousness, who has depended in some way upon our goodness before your throne. We pray that you would strike deep into our hearts, show each one of us, By neglecting you, by not treasuring you and loving you with all of our heart, soul, and mind 24-7, we have held you in contempt. We are impious. O Lord, we have had the deepest rejection of God. We've hated you without cause, as Jesus said. Lord, we pray that we will not try to cover our sin, not try to lighten it or make excuses for it. Simply come before you and trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. You declare us not guilty. You declare us righteous and accepted. You embrace us and forgive our sins and don't count them against us. We become your children now and forever, and it will never change those who trust in you. And you will give us all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Because from now on, we will be in your favor, and you will even then begin to transform our lives Making us more and more into the image of Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can come freely, openly, honestly, fall down before you and confess our sin, and you will forgive us in Christ Jesus. We praise
0: you in his name. Amen. The pleasing scene
1: is clouded or with pain.
0: rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away, then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love,